Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Uh, as we read it, as, as we hear the story, it's a bit perplexing. Um, it's, it's so perplexing, in fact, that it, it just it has the ring of truth. It has the ring of um, something out of this world. That this kind of story would be a pivot point in the salvation of the world um, is remarkable and confounding perplexing. And we thank you. It, it, it's not the kind of thing that we would make up. So we thank you for it and all of its complexity. I pray that you would help us to understand it, help me to communicate this morning. Most importantly, we pray again for your spirit to be at work in our midst. We need this time together, this time of worship. We are so um, prone to um, cooking up our own little script for life. And then we read a text like this and we realize uh, your script is very different than what we would concoct. And so help us to live in step with your script, with your salvation. We pray that this passage and this preaching of your word would uh, work to that end. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were to leave the building this morning and on your way to the parking lot, someone was to approach you in the parking lot, they looked very important, very legitimate, very qualified, credentialed, and they pulled out an envelope and they handed it to you and they said, here, we, we, we have a friend who's a billionaire and he wants to contribute um, $500 million to you. Uh, it's just kind of, he does this, and, he, and here, here's the paperwork. This money is coming your way at the end of the month, and, it's, and, and we verify it. It's all, it's very legit. $500 million will be yours at the end of January. That's what you learn on your way out to the car. What if that happened? We just think about that. You got medical debt, student loans. Kids' future, home mortgage, all of it, just taken care of, set financially for life. That would change your day, wouldn't it? Would you be a little more excited that day? Maybe, maybe a few days, maybe a week, maybe months. So what we believe is that the promises of God change us. And the promises of God are infinitely sweeter than that little thing that happened in the parking lot, the $500 million, infinitely sweeter. I mean, let's, let's just name a few. This is just a sampling. We could, we could go on and on about the promises of God. But Jesus in John's gospel promises us abundant life. Uh, Paul in Romans says that the sufferings of this present life and present moment, your most profound and deepest suffering, is not even a drop in the bucket. Compared to the glory that will be revealed to you and in you, Paul says in Romans 8. Paul, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that what God has planned to do for all eternity is just lavish, fleeing, blessing, and kindness after kindness upon you for ages to come. In Revelation, we're promised that every tear will be wiped. These promises are so sweet that Paul... In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, we t the thorn in the flesh, there's a lot of debate. Well, what was the thorn in the flesh that Paul had? 
There's a lot of discussion on that. An even more interesting thing, I think, is why Paul had the thorn in the flesh. Do you remember? He explains it in 2 Corinthians 11. He says that he got, he says, I don't know if it was physical or if it was a vision. It doesn't really matter because it, it, it might as well just been physical. It was so real. I got swept up into the third heaven, the very presence of God. And I saw things there. I came face to face with the glory of God. And when I came back down from that vision, or maybe physically came back to planet Earth, I don't know. When I came back down, God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me grounded as a result of that vision. To keep me, he says, the quote, to, from being too elated, this is 2 Corinthians 11, from being too elated at the revelations of God. So here's Paul, he gets this little sneak peek, momentary fleeting snapshot of life with God, and God has to give him, maybe it's migraine headaches, maybe it's um, just chronic pain. We don't know what it was, but it was painful, it was irritating, it was a little burr in his saddle all of his life to keep him on task, to keep him on mission, and not being just a giddy, a giddy little you know, person because of the revelations that he had received. If we knew the promises of God that await us, like in full form, we'd be like Paul. We'd be just giddy and out of control and not on task. That's how great the promises of God are. And one reason I don't think we're more motivated and animated and activated by the promises of God is not because we don't believe they're sweet, I mean, it's easy for us to imagine the God who created this world and everything in it, and he made us, and he made this world full of delights and pleasures and joy and happiness. That God who made us in the world, he knows what he's doing when it comes to our joy and happiness. And if he says a weight of glory is coming, that's not even in comparison to the sufferings of the present. We can trust him on that. I think the bigger difficulty that we have in believing in these promises in a way that changes us, is that we think to ourselves, why would he do that to me? If there's a way to squander, to fumble, to discard the promises of God through my own sin, through my own waywardness, through my own idiocy, I'm going to find it. I, I'll screw this thing up. And here, here's what this story teaches us. God's promises, God's word holds. Even in the midst of this mess that we read, just read about. It's a total mess. Um, God's promises hold. You remember the Abraham story? So Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was called by God, follow me, I will make you a great nation, and I will make you a nation that blesses all nations. That was Abraham's call. But for that blessing to move forward, you remember the difficulty? It was, it was kind of a hazard. It, it was infertility, right? Uh, Abraham and Sarah could not have Isaac. So how can the promises move forward if they can't have a son, Isaac? Okay, now, Grant, Abraham and Sarah, they messed up plenty in that story. But the primary problem was one of, it, it was a hazard of life in the fallen world, infertility. The primary problem in this next generation with Isaac passing it down to Jacob is the failure of the individuals involved. 
in this handing of the blessing down. Every one of them. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning, is the blessings of God moving forward from Isaac to Jacob. And I think what we're going to see is the supremacy and the power and the fixedness of God's word. We can trust it. Okay, we got three points this morning, uh, three F's. It just so happened that it worked this week. Failures, flight, faithfulness. Those are the three points. Failures, flight, and faithfulness. So first, the failures. Now, if you approach the Bible as, as a book filled with you know, moral exemplars that we are to follow, like characters like Moses and Noah and Abraham and these you're going you're gonna to run into problems because every character in these stories fails. And we see that here in this passage, every one of these characters failing big time. So let's just take each one in turn. Esau, you don't have it printed in your order of worship. Hey, I, I, wanted, I wanted more in this order of worship. We didn't have space for it. If you have your Bibles, which is good idea if you have them, look, look, look at chapter 26, verse 34. It says, when Esau was four, this is what starts the whole story. It's framed with Esau and his marriages. That frames this whole story. It says, uh, this is Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You see what Esau is doing? The Hittites are part of a larger group, the Canaanites, just the inhabitants of the land, the neighbors of the, of the people of God. And Esau takes them to be his wife, two, two, two women to be his, his wife. This was a violation of the family pattern of going outside of the Canaanites to the family to take a wife. And it wasn't a racial um, thing. It was a, it was a cultural religious matter. The Canaanites were a wicked people, and it was an effort to preserve uh, the family of faith. And what we see here is, again, Esau is this impulsive man. Remember, remember the birthright? Remember what he traded the birthright for? A bowl of soup. I'm hungry. I need food. I will throw everything away for that bowl of soup that I smell right before me. Right? The immediate what was near him was most what he wanted the most. He couldn't see beyond to the promises of God. And the same thing here, right? I need wife. I need wife. He can't see beyond the land of his neighbors. He sees these attractive little Hittite women running around. He's like, I need them. And notice there's no involvement of mom and dad. There's no, no arrangement going on. He takes what is closest to him, what immediately satisfies his need. And that's Esau. That's, he's an impulsive man. Now, let's uh, look at Isaac here. It says, verse 27, uh, verse 1, it says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so he could not see. He is uh, physically blind. He's grown physically blind, but also there, there, there's something else going on. There's a spiritual blindness that has taken Isaac. He can't see beyond his gut, a lot like Esau. He can't see beyond what his stomach is telling him he needs. 
verse 4, we learn that this food becomes his passion. He loves it. It's, it you could translate it, this, this game of Esau is his passion. It's what he wants. And notice this. Blessings were a public affair. These things happened in the, in the, in the, before others. You know, the, the blessings were important. They, they were... Uh, They didn't have like, you know, file cabinets and paperwork and notaries and signatures and all of that. The way these things moved forward was through blessings, through um, transference of blessing in the presence of others so as to help validate the thing, like a signature. They, They did it. Yes, we saw. He wants to do this covertly. And Isaac wants to do it in direct violation of the oracle that was received back in chapter 25 Verse 23, that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would, be, would, 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 would receive the blessings and the promises. So, there's Isaac. Now, we look at Esau and Isaac and we think both of them are willing to give up so much for something so small, the promises of God, the blessings of God for a bowl of soup. Violate God's word in the case of Isaac in order to get some of Esau's game. And we look at that and we think, how could they do that? But I think that's the point. We all run the risk of throwing the promises of God away for small things. We fixate on small things, insignificant things. Many of us have... have, we begin to prefer pixels, little pixels over people. Maybe it's in the form of, of, of pornography. Maybe it's in the form of just online relationships, just activity online, engagement online, and neglecting the people that are right before us. Maybe it's substances in the case of Isaac and Esau. Maybe it's soup. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's some drugs of some sort. There's a pastor... Uh, in, uh, in our denomination that has spoken of being, um, having a struggle with gluttony. And you look at him, you wouldn't think he had a struggle with gluttony. We almost, we almost kind of, people kind of laugh when he says it. Because they're like, yeah, right, you don't have a struggle with gluttony. No, but I think he's right to recognize that that can be a real struggle, especially in a land flowing with food everywhere. Right? It seems, it, it, these things, they seem small to us, but they, they have a way of having enormous impacts in our lives. You know, so much of life happens in small moments. We, got, we have houses being built all around us. You know how houses are built? Paul Tripp says with lots of little moments, little nails, thousands of nails, just hammered one after another, after another, after another, after a month or two, three months, four months, boom, you've got a house eventually. Lots of little moments. And these little sins that are habitual, that we keep doing, we keep going back to time and time again. They seem very little over the course of a year, five years, a decade, two decades, three decades. And before you know it, there's, there's a house that's been built around that. Something that can, that can be destructive way beyond what you would ever imagine that thing could be. That little sin. That's how sin works. It builds. It builds. And that's what's happened here. Isaac and Esau are willing to throw these things away for what is closest to them. So, 
Let's now look at Rebecca and Jacob. First, Rebecca. Remember Rebecca when we first met her? Precious Rebecca. Abraham sent his servant to, to his father's or to his family's land, and uh, the servant arrives, and uh, she immediately greets the servant and says, "How can I serve you? Let me water, provide water for you." Remember what she does? Also, she she waters uh, ten camels. And we said, that's 250 gallons of water that she provides these. She's pulling up the well, like eight hours of well work. She's pouring herself out for others. And here, look at her here. She is hatching a plan to intercept the blessing from one of her sons so that it goes to her favorite son, Jacob. She says, quick, get to work. Your dad's about to hand this thing down, and I know how it's going to go, and we can intercept the blessing, right? I've, I've got a plan. You go get two goats. I'll cook something up. And notice, this is important to notice. The, 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 the Hebrew is really subtle, but it's making a lot. It's saying a lot. Uh, in verses 6, you see that Rebecca calls Isaac your, your father. Your father. She calls Esau your brother. She calls Jacob her son. See? You, you, you know when we're irritated with somebody? You know, hey, your dogs need to go out, or your brother, need, you know, we distance ourselves. That's what Rebecca's doing. This is a family that's alienated from one another. There are alliances within this family. Rebecca and her son Jacob in one corner, Isaac and Esau in another. She's distancing herself from them. It's a dysfunctional family, and it's a mess of a situation. And now, does Jacob say, Mom, this is, this is wicked. This is deplorable. We should not be doing this. No, this, what, what does he say? He basically says, will it work? I don't know that this is going to work. 20, chapter 27, look at verse 11. Jacob says to Rebekah, Behold, my brother Esau, he's hairy, and I'm smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him. This thing could totally backfire on me. The father, dad figures it out, and he brings a curse on me. And Rebecca says, don't worry about that, baby. I've got, I'm going to ta- take the curse for you, my, my precious son. And so they get prepped, and, and uh, Esau preps, uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry, Jacob uh, preps himself. He gets outfitted in Esau's clothes, and he puts the goat hair on, and he goes to his father, verses 18 and following, and he, and he says, my father... And Jacob says, here I am, uh, who are you? Or, I'm sorry, Isaac says, here I am, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that you, your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, Isaac's kind of one, something's off for Isaac. How, how did you find this food so quickly, my son? And Jacob says, because the Lord your God granted me success lie, blasphemy, right? Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob goes near to Isaac, his father who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like the hands of Esau, like his brother's Esau's hands. And so Isaac blessed Jacob and he said, are you really my son Esau? 
He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank and Isaac pours out the the blessing upon Jacob without reservation. Esau, right? Lavish this thing on him. Lavish it. And that's what he does. All the promises, all the blessings come down on Jacob the trickster. And Esau, in typical Esau fashion, shows up just too late. And Isaac, they, Esau, Isaac and Esau figure out what happens. Isaac starts trembling violently. Esau cries bitterly. He says, Father, is there anything left for me? And the answer is no, there's not. And Isaac gives him really what, what I think you call an anti-blessing. Listen, listen to what he says, verse 39. Isaac, his father, said to Esau, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high, a desolate, empty, famine existence you will have. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Sorry, Esau, your life is going to be marked by hunger and war. That's your future. And that brings it, so there's the, the failures. Now that brings us to our second point, the flight. Jacob is sent away. Actually, he runs away. Uh, two, two kind of motivations, we'll get to that in a sec. But first, his mom, his mom says, look, um, look at verse 41. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Rebekah says, look, Jacob, this is not good. Esau, the warm blanket of comfort for Esau is thought of him killing you. That's how he puts himself to sleep at night. That's his pacifier to help him relieve his stress. Thoughts about killing you. You got to go, Jacob. You got to go. And so Jacob becomes a fugitive on the run. And then we also see, though, this is, I don't know that this is printed, chapter 28, Isaac as well instructs Jacob to leave, to leave the land of Canaan, so to find a wife in the land of Laban, where Isaac's, where Rebekah came from. And so, really, Jacob is, is running from two things. One of the commentators, Bruce Waltke, points out there's, there's two threats that have Jacob on the run. Persecution from Esau and accommodation, running from the accommodation prospect of marrying the Hittites or the Canaanites in the land and I think one of, one of the things that's instructive from this is that when the blessings of God, when the promises of God fall on an individual, it puts us in an awkward relationship with the world. We face those same two threats, persecution, accommodation, right? In fact, to the extent that we resist a, a persecution, we invite the threat of accommodation in. And to the extent that we resist accommodation, we invite 
persecution into our life. Such is the, the state for those of us following God. Puts us in a tense relationship with the world around us. Now, one sad side note that I just I, I want to I hit real quickly. If you have your Bibles again, this is chapter 28, verse 6. This is how the story ends. Remember how the story began? Esau marrying. Remember how it ends? Esau marrying. You know, the, the Hebrew always kind of frames these things. Look at how it ends. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. That's what Isaac said to, to Jacob. Don't take one of those Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. And so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women didn't please his father, Esau went to Ishmael to take his daughter to be his wife. Right? From, from, you remember, this is uh, cousins. He took, he took his cousin from his family. You see, Esau, he's like, wait a sec. Dad doesn't like these Canaanite wives. I, I got to go find a wife from the family. So he goes to Ishmael. Dad, are you, are you happy now? Remember, remember why dad loved Esau? Do you remember? Because he ate his food. Remember what it was rooted in? If, 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 if Esau asked Isaac, why do you love me? You know, what, you know what Isaac would reply? I love you because you hunt game for me. It was a, it was a performance. He was, he was, it wasn't, I love you because I love you. It was, I love you because you provide a service for me. You're a man's man. You make me proud out in the field. And you bring me good food to eat. That's why I love you. But look, look at the cycle of insecurity that, that creates. See him, Esau's just, he's just he's a sad figure. He's trying to please. He's, he's on that works righteousness, like give me love because of what I do. If, if marrying this person's better, then I'll do that. Whatever it takes. So we have this cauldron of family sin. And it's wreaking havoc on the whole family. Now, my goal every week is to encourage you in the love of God. But we also have to reckon with the seriousness of sin in our lives. It brings havoc. And yes, the promises, like God's grace is there, but I, I, I don't want us to overlook the nasty consequences of sin. L- listen to what uh, Bruce Waltke says regarding this whole situation. Just how messy it is. Esau resolves to murder Jacob. Jacob must flee the promised land and become an exile where Laban will deceive him time and time again. And later, by the way, Jacob will mourn the loss of his own son, who his sons betray, uh, deceive him with, and also use that brother's clothes to do it. Right? What goes around comes around. So Jacob's got all this pain in his future through de- deceit. And we see that Rebekah's going to lose contact with both of her sons. And she's going to die, but Rebecca dies with, with zero memorial. Remember, Sarah had this wonderful memorial. Rebecca has no memorial in the scriptures. And Isaac will live on without significance. Sin has real consequences. 
Little sin, like a love for soup or a proclivity to a, one child. It, it wreaks havoc in a family. It may just be like a love for cheeseburgers or fantasy football or pickleball or any little thing that has a way of elbowing out God in our lives. It, it brings disaster to us. And we need to have our eyes open to that. But we can't end there. Because that's kind of a, that's a down note. And this is not, this is not a tragedy. Um, even though it, it looks that way, doesn't it? Um, this brings us to our final point. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. So what's the point of all this? It's a really good question to ask. I mean, if we, again, if we come to the Bible looking for characters to follow, we're going to be misled and disappointed. The Bible is primarily and fundamentally about God and his faithfulness to a people. You know, Esau and Isaac are groping their way through life, through their, through their gut, and through what is immediately satisfying to them, we see in these final days. Rebecca and Jacob are, 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 are crafty. They're schemers. They're, they're architects of these plans to kind of get what they want. They may want the right things, but they're going about it in in, in a deplorable way. But through it all, the word of God stands. The promise of God stands. The oracle, chapter 25, verse 23, the older, older will serve the younger. It holds. You can finagle, you can tinker, you can try to outwit God, but you can't. God's promises stand. They move forward. His purposes move forward. Listen listen to what Gordon Wenham says about this whole passage. He says, By setting this new step forward in the history of salvation in the context of such unprincipled behavior by every member of the family, each self-centeredly seeking his or her own interest, The narrator is not simply pointing out the fallibility of God's chosen, whose virtues often turn into vices, but reasserting the grace of God. It's his mercy that is the ultimate ground of salvation. This whole salvation project, this is the point, it depends upon God, not man. That's the point. And remember who we're talking about here. I mean, to me, this is, this is proof that this thing is, is divine. It came down from heaven. It's, it's God's word. It's not just created. Because if, if, if you're going to explain the, the founding of your people, this is Jacob who becomes Israel, who fathers the 12 tribes. This is Father Israel. Like, this is how he gets the family. You don't be better at curating the situation, kind of whitewashing a lot of these details, right? Give it kind of that social media massage that we like to give. Put your best foot forward. This is, you're explaining to the world how you, were, how you arrived, and yet it's so raw, and it's ugly, and that's the point, because it's God's story. Think about the, think about the cross of Christ. Remember, remember Jesus' brothers, his kinsmen? Remember what they were doing? Plotting his death. Scheming. Trying to... You know, the warm blanket for Jesus' kin 
was the thought of putting him to death. If we could just figure out a way to put him to death, that's what we want. That's what will bring happiness. Remember Judas betraying Christ with a kiss, much like, much like Jacob betraying his father with a kiss, verse 27. And while Jesus is being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, do you remember what's happening to Peter? He's being interrogated. Like Jesus is being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the powerful ruling Jewish council. And Peter's being interrogated by, by a, a 12 to 13 year girl, old girl. And she says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Remember what Peter says? No, no, you, you, got, you got me confused. I'm not. And you know what else he's doing at that point? Warming his hands by the fire. Jesus is getting grilled by the Sanhedrin. Peter's warming his hands. Jesus is having a crown of thorns bear down on his head, getting his flesh ripped apart through flogging and will be pinned upon a, a cross. And all the disciples are self-protective mode, self-centered. How can, I, how can I get out of this situation? How can I avoid any, any consequences? How can I? It's the, it's the same situation as we see right here. There's deception. There's betrayal. There's the murder of a brother. It's all the same ingredients. See, the, the Bible is telling us, teaching us, not primarily what we're to do, but one, let me tell you, it's telling us two things. It's telling us who we are. It's saying, look, you're Jacob, you're Esau, you're Isaac. You trade the promises of God for a bowl of soup. You're Peter, who would warm his hands while his Lord is, is suffering or buckle under the, 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 the pressure of a 12-year-old girl who asks if he's a follower of Jesus. It's telling us who we are, but it's also telling us the good news of what God has done. God is highlighting what he's doing in the world. He's bringing about the salvation of a people, not based on the works of a people, based on his work, his power, his might, his wisdom. There was a show in the 90s that you may have heard of. It's called Seinfeld. And the, the, every episode was the same format. You know, it was like all these various threads were moving kind of, running along, and then they would eventually converge towards the end, and then just everything would unravel, converge and fall apart. Every, the whole situation falls apart. And you know, we, call it, we call Seinfeld a comedy, but like strictly speaking, it's a tragedy. Every episode's a tragedy, because all of these threads come together in disastrous ways, and everything falls apart. That's a tragedy. What the scriptures are doing, it, it appears like it's moving in that sort of way. Disaster, it's all unraveling. The disciples are running. East, Rebecca and Jacob are plotting. and All these things are... But then it, it, it flips around for good. The, the death of Christ is the hope of the world. That's what God is doing, and that's what he's showing here. He's working out his purposes through... You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, it's a very complicated difficult chapter, but he says the Jews were disobedient so that mercy might be shown to you Gentiles. Right? We get mercy because of their disobedience. Paul, that's what Paul tells his Gentile readers. Because of their disobedience. That's what God is doing. No matter how messed up things get by human involvement, God's good purposes stand. He's faithful. Now, you may ask yourself, but how can I know that? Back to the original question. How can I know that he's faithful to me? Because I screw things up. 
What, what if I'm like Esau? Esau's a tragedy. Remember, remember what Esau thought about the blessings and promises of God? Esau despised them. He didn't want them. Remember? He didn't want them. What separated Jacob from Esau? Really, only one thing that I can see. In fact, Jacob's the less attractive figure. If I could be friends with Jacob or Esau, I'd probably go Esau based on what I see here. Here's the difference. Jacob wanted the promises of God. Jacob wanted the blessings. That's the only requirement, that you want Christ. You want Jesus. You want what he has to offer. That's the difference. We say often following the reading of Scripture that all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. It does, and we see that here in this passage. And that's good news for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Um, I feel as though we've, we've barely scratched the surface of, of, of the wisdom and the truth that's contained, but pray that your spirit would just um, sink it deep into our hearts so that we might live uh, changed and different as a result of, of hearing it. More trusting of you, more enveloped in your love, more desirous of your promises and, and of you. And we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us, Gentiles even, um, that the world has indeed been blessed through, through Jacob, through Israel. And we give you uh, thanks for that. Help us to continue to grow uh, and, and, uh, as we hear your word and receive your sacraments and sing of your uh, glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.